Okay. All right. So thanks for coming back. Um, it's heartening as a teacher. And uh, we're going to keep heading farther and farther into the deep end of the pool. Uh, just before we go much farther, though, were there any questions about that practice we did just before lunch, including the larger context about lateral networks, the brain, the red blobs or the good blobs in this in these pictures? Um, okay, good. So in the back there, and a microphone to the woman right there, and then maybe the man next to her. Any microphone runners? I know the microphone runners are around here. Here he Great. You keep your hand up. He'll, there you go. He'll bring you the mic. Very, very good. What about pain? What about Physical it? pain. No. What about What about um, what, um, Physical pain during the practice. What do you have? What do you your what thoughts do about that? What to do with that? What about it? Yeah. Pain is a huge topic. So I'll, I'll speak specifically and then a little more generally. So... Um, first pain is a natural signal that something's awry as far as the body's concerned and um, my just sometimes people think that if they're sitting in a particular posture that's painful they shouldn't move it is sometimes a traditional instruction to just not move even if you're knees are killing you or your back is, so forth. You know, I don't mean any disrespect to teachers who speak that way. On the other hand, my own notion, and I've known people who've had breakthroughs around that. On the other hand, often it's just pain with no gain. And pain kindles more pain. It sensitizes us to pain. So I think, uh, while on the one hand, if we go to war with pain, we just add pain. On the other hand, it's really important to take pain seriously. And to do what we can that's, in my opinion, um, skillful, reasonable, takes a lot into account to uh, listen to pain and uh, not casually and uh, tolerate it, let alone feed it, point one. The body, we didn't evolve to sit like that for 40 minutes in a row you know, without moving. Uh, so, point one. Point two, if the pain is just there and it's not the result of adopting a meditative posture, let's say, uh, it's natural for pain to uh, draw attention. It's designed to. It's like a flashing red light right on the inner dashboard. And then the question is how to practice with it. There's actually a lot of work that's done on mindfulness and meditation as resources for practicing with pain. The foundation of mindfulness-based stress reduction, Jaden Kabat-Zinn's wonderful program originating, I think, in 1979, was for people who uh, kind of chronic pain patients for whom nothing else had worked. And so people talk about uh, different methods, some being to just uh, explore the pain as, as sensation and gradually uh, kind of disentangle it with insight, start seeing the different aspects of the experience of pain. And so it becomes more and more disentangled, less knotted, less brick-like, more like a cloud. It's there, but it 
seems to lose its force. That's one strategy. Another strategy is to, it is what it is, it is there. And what else is true? If consciousness is like a mosaic with many tiles, that red light is flashing. Okay. And what else is true? Uh, And also, can we not engage what the Buddha called the second dart or second arrow? In other words, pain, let's say, is like a first dart or first arrow. But we don't need necessarily to add reactions to it, like tensing around it or getting angry at it or angry at ourselves or angry at others who haven't helped us enough with the pain and so forth. So these are all different strategies I'm moving through here. And then a couple more things I'll just add here. So I said to someone at the break, two things are Mother Nature's, I was going to say Advil, but anything, analgesic. One is feeling socially supported. That's natural pain relief. Research shows that, for example, people who hold the hands of a loved one uh, experience their, their pain centers activate less when something painful happens to their body. Uh, so just to the extent you can, bringing awareness of feeling nourished and loved. The pain is still there, but it can dial it down some. And then with repetition, through repeatedly experiencing states of loving connection, both especially received and also often give, given, because love is love whether it's flowing in or out. Um, with repetition of experiences, states of this social connection, we establish greater and greater trait capacity to activate that loving feeling at will or to just kind of have it color our consciousness more generally. This is sort of the stew theory of psychology, you know, where we're vegetarians stew, where we're trying to improve the flavors of it by developing traits of curry and anise and basil. <laughs> and you know what I mean. We're trying to color our own consciousness over time. So that's major analgesic social support. Another major analgesic system in the brain involves natural opioids, feelings of pleasure. So being able to repeatedly drop into emotionally positive experience or the, the internalization of the feeling of beauty or awe, uh, other forms of pleasure, is really, I think, a good thing to develop. And I'm going to get in momentarily into how, as I've said a little bit previously, positive emotion can really be an aid to steadiness of mind. So that would be another thing I would say. And then the last thing I would just do is encourage people to check out people who are really experts in this area. I'm not. And Vidya Mala Birch is a particular friend and an expert here, B-U-R-C-H. She lives with a very intense chronic pain and um, grew up in New Zealand. And she's done a lot of work called Breathworks about pain and managing pain and integrating pain in life and in your own practice. So hopefully that was relevant. Okay, great. Um, Yeah, it's like pain is there, but that whole second dart thing is really useful. It's, It's not adding to it. Okay. There was a man right there. Perfect. Is this on? Yeah. I think you referred to your brain maps that you showed earlier. Um, you mentioned this blue medial area you said where there a lot of junk was. Uh, 
Is is that what neuroscientists refer to as the ascending descending association cortices? Probably not. Uh, oh. they, they like peep. They refer to the default mode network. You may have heard that. Um, and one thing that that I have <clears throat> encountered a lot of in neuroscience is terminology problems. Yeah, and I. I have a friend who's a neurologist, and he says just the terminology alone in medical school just discourages lots of people. And, and I found the same part of the brain described in multiple ways, and I've seen the same word used for different parts of the brain, so it's a little weird. The basic idea is that uh, we all know the difference between present, present, for anything, listening to a friend, Appreciating a sunset, staying with the breath, you know, present, present, and then whoo, lost, lost in thought, twirling out. Maybe it's pleasant, lost in thought, or neutral. Sometimes it's negative, rehashing conversations with others, going back to wounds, things like that. That distinction, it's a little dualistic, but we all know kind of it. And so what this material is about is kind of some of the plausible neural basis for being lost in thought. That's more like midline default mode stuff. Or obsessed with task doing. That's more like the frontal part. Frontal part. With a strong sense of me, myself, and I throughout. Versus this lateral mode. And it's one of the more practical... A lot of neuroscience might be interesting, but it's not very useful, especially for this contemplative territory. This is a really useful finding, I find, this distinction. Okay, Was there more on that, or...? That was, uh, that was it? No, I was just trying to, what I'm, I'm working on, trying to determine where the inputs to what we call our self or our ego, where they meet up and form this I character that we... You and a lot of other people. <laughs> <laughs> no, in a good way, yeah. I know. <laughs> uh, no, it's great stuff. Uh, if you have any, it, it, this is a really great question. Um, so the last chapter of Buddha's Brain, might be of interest to you. Okay. It's, it's my favorite chapter because it's about this. Okay. The sense of self and the ways in which, while in the brain, you can find localization of function for all kinds of stuff. Wiggle your left little finger. You can find circuitry that really does that. You think about the sense of I that's so powerful. You can't find any place in the brain that just does I. Yeah. It's widely distributed. It comes and goes. Um, and those parts of the brain that have transient activations of selfing also do tons of other things. It's kind of like the sense of self is just more flotsam and jetsam swirling down the stream of consciousness <laughs> along with the other old boots and rotten banana leaves. You know? So it's, it's really interesting stuff. And then I, I've done a, I do a workshop as well on self and not self and uh, you can check out my slide sets about that if you want on my website and it's really interesting to look at some of the neuroscience about that. Okay, one more person and we'll, great, right there. Yeah, you, perfect. They'll take the mic to you. Chris, this is coming from more of a, people have more of a technical background maybe, but we're t the, the thing we were doing before lunch and concentrating, is it Okay to include in or try to uh, push push out 
things about what you would infer from what you're seeing. For example, in this room, you know, you know because a lot of people breathing, there's a lot of air, airflow, things going on that you, that you can't see that. Yeah. But from your own knowledge, you know, know some of the things are going on. And should you try pushing those type of thoughts out when you're doing this or be open to use them or include that in your sense? Thank you. And you're really getting at, in addition to the particular question, this broad question about skillful means, right? And as kind of a metaphor, the Buddha's metaphor, he talked about we encounter a river of suffering and we want to cross to safety on the other, sh- on the other side. So we build a raft and it gets us across the river. Once we get to the other side, we don't need to keep carrying the raft around. Right? We can move on from our, our methods. So that's kind of a way to think in general. Any kind of method, including these, say, is just a method. And it's the question is, what's the fruit of it? What's the result of it? And are there other better methods for an individual at this time to get the result? Or, pardon me, at some point, does the, does the method become so part of you that you, you got it and you can kind of check out other things. So that's a context. And then specifically, uh, if it's useful to bring into awareness, let's say, as you're going out to the whole and going back to those seven processes of awakening that for me, that I talked about in the very beginning as sort of ways of clustering major themes in contemplative practice, that also have an increasingly plausible embodied basis in the body that we can understand better and better and actually use. One of them being, you know, enjoying wholeness and then opening into allness. If it's useful for a person to start to, to know intellectually at first, but it becomes felt, like the felt recognition, the felt knowing of something, you start to realize as I breathe, I'm intimate with all the green growing things on this planet. Actually, also as I breathe, I'm intimate with oxygen and carbon and nitrogen, all of which were born in the heart of a star. Usually as it was exploding, spreading all the atoms in the universe, heavier than helium essentially, are born and made inside stars. Wow. I am stardust, I am golden. I don't know, you know what I mean? Like, well, if knowing that, like me, you know, takes you out, great. On the other hand, if you find yourself thinking about it, well, guess what? You're in the problematic blue zone. <laughs> so that's the question. So basically it can, it's yep. helpful, but yeah. otherwise maybe there are times when it's best not you know, to not go that direction. Yeah, that's what I would say. If it's useful, and I find a little bit of this kind of more trippy conceptualizing goes a long way. And then you come down again into what's it feel like, like awe or mystery or not knowing. And just, you know, that's what we're going for. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thank you. Okay. So, okay. I want to talk now about... Um, in Buddhist practice and more generally, the place for concentration with a particular meaning to that word. And it's kind of a, 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 a dual meaning. 
in this sense, and I'm speaking here in part of the element in the eightfold path that's called wise or right concentration. It's like it's, it's good concentration, kind of what the word means, uh, wise or right. Um, <clears throat> the two senses here are we become absorbed in something. Okay? We become concentrated in it. The something we're becoming concentrated in is presumably like the raft. It's, it's a means to an end, and it's an end in itself. It's not that we're becoming concentrated in rage or shame, right? Or some kind of addiction. We're becoming concentrated in or absorbed in something beneficial and wholesome, even radically beneficial. And that which we are becoming absorbed in is becoming more and more concentrated, refined or essentialized. We're in it. And uh, this element of the Buddhist path in the West, uh, with some exceptions, but pretty much pretty generally over the last certainly 40, 50 years, less so recently, has been kind of pushed aside. This element of non-ordinary states of consciousness known as the jhanas. If you've heard about this material, I'm, I'm trying to include you in the discussion. If you haven't heard about this material, I'm trying to include you here and, and speak in a way that's inclusive. These four jhanas, which are then followed by four so-called formless jhanas, so eight stages, if you will, ways of being, are uh, a repeatedly described process leading to the final movement into uh, cessation and the unconditioned, uh, sometimes called nirvana or nibbana. Nibbana. So this is a progression. So like I said, we're kind of going hardcore today, but we're doing it in a way that includes all of us, I hope. Uh, The Buddha did not teach that there's no secret teaching in early Buddhism. It's all laid out. And it's laid out for everyone, which was very radical for him at the time. Far from perfect, early patriarchal, very problematic, stratified culture. That said, uh, his fundamental teaching, with some prodding from his mother and others, he included women and non-monastics. The point being that awakening is available for anyone. And he really, very radically at the time, said that it's not our birth status in a caste system that makes a person holy. It's not empty ritual that makes a person holy. It's what you do intentionally with your own mind and heart. That was radical for his time. And it goes to another kind of saying that I personally have, has a lot of meaning for me. uh, The teaching goes, uh, one is not called uh, wise, and wise being a really important word here, wisdom. One is not called wise who can recite the sacred scriptures. One is called wise who is peaceable, friendly, and fearless. Peaceable, friendly, and fearless. In other words, the fruition of real practice, experientially, moving beyond the idea to the actual experience. That's that's the frame here. And that's the emphasis that these processes of experiential, embodied transformation are... Uh, the invitation is for all of us, 
And uh, the kind of inspiring sense of possibility is maybe not in this life, and who knows about the others, but uh, even in this life we can sure go a long way. And sometimes we have flashes of what's true that we gradually have to cultivate, all right, progressively over time. So it's in that context that I want to talk about this. I'm not going to say that in this workshop we're going to drop into the jhanas. Uh, they're, um, I have some experience myself in this territory. They're, for most people, sometimes people can step off a bus like Eckhart Tolle apparently or <laughs> lightning strikes. Uh, and wow, that, that's great. Uh, most people though, it's like sustained practice, like a 10-day meditation retreat. By the 10th day, they're maybe dropping into something that's really quite non-ordinary, quite radical. Uh, so I want to go through these, okay, so far? And then we'll talk about um, factors of them. I think I'll just read these. <clears throat> so, and to be clear, this is traditional language that was memorized and passed down for several centuries before the earliest surviving written record. Maybe some noise has crept in and missed the signal. Probably some editing along the way. Uh, These states of consciousness were known in the Buddhist time. Uh, People would practice in them and they would develop them. And uh, I want to really kind of say for the record that it's the noble eightfold path. It's not the sevenfold path that these are part of the, the Buddhist path, if that, if that path interests you. So, what, friends, is right concentration? Here, quite secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states, a person enters upon and abides in the first jhana, which is accompanied by applied and sustained thought with rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. So first point, this is a translation from Pali. It's an ancient language. There are translations that are different or that evolved. Some of the language here is, for, is it, it has, it's like a euphemism for something or it has a technical meaning. Seclusion means a kind of disengagement from worldly life, at least for the time. And applied and sustained by thought, they really mean the application of attention applying attention and sustaining attention. A certain deliberateness still in this first non-ordinary state of consciousness. With the stilling of applied and sustained thought, the person enters upon and abides in the second jhana, which has self-confidence and singleness of mind without applied and sustained thought and with rapture and pleasure born of concentration. So in the second jhana, there's a transition. Deliberate focus, which is present in the first jhana, falls away. There's no longer any need for a deliberate effort to focus and concentrate. And there's an increasing presence of bliss and joy, uh, rapture and pleasure. And then in the third jhana, the bliss tends to fade. With the fading away as well of rapture, the person abides in equanimity, sense of great balance, real sense of fullness and enoughness already. And mindful and fully aware, still feeling pleasure with the body, enters upon and abides in the third jhana, on account of which noble ones announce, he or she has a pleasant abiding who has equanimity 
and as mindful. With the abandoning of pleasure and pain, so even fairly subtle forms of happiness kind of fall away, negative emotions fall away. And with the previous disappearance of joy and grief, intense versions of this, he or she enters upon and abides in the fourth jhana, which has neither pain nor pleasure, and purity of mindfulness, great clarity and presence due to equanimity. This all four of these is called right concentration. There are teachers of the jhanas, uh, Lee Brasington, uh, Tina um, Rasmussen and Stephen Snyder, friends of mine, people I know, other people, Shayla Catherine, Richard Shankman, teachers sometimes here, certainly traditional teachers, Paul Oxiadal. Um, you find these states of consciousness since there's only one human brain, fundamentally. We all have the same brain, more or less. That's good news and bad news. But anyway, um, you know, you find versions of these non-ordinary states described in other traditions. Right? There, if you have an interest in this material, or maybe you already have some background with it, I'm um, not trying to do the whole jhana thing here. Uh, and you might want to look elsewhere or do retreats with people who really are expert at teaching these, these stages in these transitions. Here, I think it's legitimate and accessible for us to explore factors of these non-ordinary states of absorption in the context of really kind of putting a stake in the ground, you know, the eighth stake in the ground of the Eightfold Path that says, you know, these are important. These are important. I spent a lot of time in Buddhist circles before I ever learned about the jhanas. Whoa. You know, there's more to contemplative practice than being aware and being nice. (laughs) Which is a lot better than the alternative. (laughs) Right? But you can really feel that here, especially we're talking about that, remember I said there are three fields of practice, virtue, Meditation, meditative concentration and wisdom. This is the concentration aspect. Non-ordinary states of experience that have a purifying and motivating and transformational effect. And in these deep states of absorption, which are means to an end, they're, they're really very enjoyable in the middle of them and remarkable, and they're means to an end of the purification of mind, the motivating of ourselves, and the growing of the capacity for radically liberating insight. To use a traditional story that I mentioned to someone in a group of people at the lunch break, uh, the metaphor goes like this. We find ourselves in a forest of suffering. What are we going to do? And in the distance, we see the mountains where there is sublime, lasting, profound happiness, which is peace. What do we do? Well, first thing... All we need to do is to cut a trail to the mountain. We don't need to cut down the whole forest. Whew, what a relief. Second, to cut the trail, we could use a razor blade and cut the trees in the brush. That's not very effective. Or we could get a big stick, heavy, whack those trees and brush. That's not very effective either. But if we combine the sharpness of penetrating insight, vipassana, with the heft and power of concentration, shamatha practice sometimes called, make a machete, a razor-sharp machete, then we can make our way to 
the mountaintop of enlightenment. That's the metaphor. So you see the two that go together. And a lot of people struggle because their concentration is not that deep or strong, and it would really be a service to focus on that. So that's the focus. Okay? Which we can then apply to paying attention in a business meeting in the afternoon when we're drowsy and it's boring. All right. So classically, there are... um, And I'm going to do this kind of quickly so we can do an experiential practice in a moment. So classically, there are five jhana factors. These are certainly the... Most of them are accessible to us in everyday life. First is applying attention. For example, to apply attention to the beginning of an inhalation or apply attention to a word that we're using in our mind or applying attention to our partner who has a problem and increasingly it looks like it's you, right? You know, and yet, you know, even though it's counterintuitive, the only way out is through. So (laughs) you lean in and you apply your attention deliberately. Then sustaining attention. That's the second factor of the jhanas. Being able to sustain attention over the course of the inhalation or exhalation or sustaining attention to what the other person is saying, even if it's unfair or they're finding fault with you and so forth. I'm not saying to be obviously mistreated or abused, but to be able to just stay with it. Sustaining attention. Then we have uh, joy. The factor of... um, in Pali, Sukha. The word Sukha, Pali and Sanskrit are sister languages, a lot of overlap. Uh, Sanskrit was more educated class. Pali was the language of the ordinary people, more or less. Uh, kind of like High German and Low German of red. So uh, the word Sukha is the basis of the word sucrose in English, or sugar. It's sweet. I like that. It's sweet. So it's a factor of concentration, including a tipping into radical states of consciousness to be able to drop into happiness, contentment, and tranquility. Jesse, what do I do when that happens? Besides call you. Technical support. So you have to redo the, you have to go up to it again? Uh-huh. Great. Good. Thanks. Thanks. Great. Okay. So, joy. A teacher of mine, Christina Feldman, pointed out that the joy factor is actually on a continuum, happiness to contentment to tranquility. It's really interesting in a meditation, if you meditate regularly, particularly for more than a few minutes at a time, play around with these first three. Willfully applying attention to your object of attention and being aware of when you're not doing that, keeping a little monitor going in your mind, probably living in the anterior cingulate cortex in your brain. It's tracking how you're doing. Also, intend to sustain attention and kind of really keep sustaining it. And then in the midst of that, bring in and play with increasingly intense and all-pervading positive emotion. Maybe starting with happiness, thinking of things that make you smile, or funny, goofy times with friends. Uh, don't get complicated about it. You just kind of focus on that. Then notice how happiness can soften into something even deeper, contentment. Enoughness already, no wish for the moment to be other than it is, along with well-being. Contentment. Contentment's a lovely experience. Um, 
and then increasingly dropping into tranquility. You know, like a still mountain pool, so beautiful, so serene, tranquil. And then, if you want, you can work your way back. Move back from tranquility to contentment, and then from contentment to happiness. And also, if you want, you can shift from using the breath, let's say, or something or a word as your object of attention to taking happiness as your object of meditation. Meditating on the feeling of happiness or meditating on contentment or tranquility. And in the process of that, becoming increasingly absorbed in, let's say, happiness, contentment, tranquility, and absorbing it into yourself. So it becomes more and more established in you as a trait. And you also have readier access to happiness or contentment or tranquility as differentiated mental states that you can call up or recognize increasingly at will in ways that are skillful means. What I love about this stuff, in part, is that it's not metaphysical at all. It's totally psychological, isn't it? Okay so far? Rapture is bliss. No, it's uh, <clears throat> if it feels normal, it's not bliss. Uh, you know, it's like you might have a moment of bliss. That's, that's bliss. You just feel like ah, ah, ah. that's bliss. But the trick is to sustain it increasingly. The word for this in Pali is PT. If you meditate much or hear, you might have heard that word. Um, Bliss is one of the seven factors of awakening in Buddhism. It's interesting that it's really called out. Some people are naturally prone to bliss. For others, it's really hard to get it going. If there's a physical health problem or depressed mood, it's really hard to get bliss going, just the way it is. Um, <clears throat> but it doesn't mean you're not doesn't mean you're dead in the water because we still have access to the joy factor of sukha. Uh, bliss often is comes from concentration. Sometimes I find myself, if you just say to yourself, I'm going to concentrate for the next 10 minutes on, let's say, my breath. It's like you're charging the battery. And then you might say, okay, let bliss arise and see if something comes up. And uh, if it comes up, great. And if not, you know, go back to your practice. And if bliss doesn't come at all, it's okay. Go to sukha. Last, unification of consciousness in Pali or singleness of mind, ekagata. Singleness of mind is described as everything kind of comes together like unification of consciousness, kathunk. That's a lot like experiencing mind as a whole that we did before lunch. If you're doing a meditation and you're starting to move into what's called access concentration, you're kind of at the door of a jhana. You're getting access to it. One of the things that starts to become more prominent there is the sense of this unification of mind, this singleness of mind, where my own experience of it is that it is very much like mind as a whole, just effortlessly. Not so much with the effort we had to put bring to bear before lunch, especially if this was new to you. But like the really deep singleness of mind, it starts to feel kind of effortless and thunk. You're just completely there, stably, with your own experience, all aspects of your experience as a single percept, as a single experience, continually. They're different things happening in experience. Sounds, sensations, passing thoughts, but 
thunk. You're just like super centered. Thunk, really there. It's a real sense of coming together. Okay, these are factors. I think most of us have experienced all of these at one time or another. Right? Um, including a very bodily state of bliss. Maybe in some form of passion or another. Uh, most of us has, have had the sense maybe doing something athletic or dance or just a moment at the beach or walking the dog when, or walking out of the hospital after you know it was all over and everything coming together. These are within reach. These are normal mental states. They're normal brain states. And with cultivation, with practice, we can train in them and have them be more and more available to us. So to the extent that in this particular contemplative tradition that I'm sitting in and kind of we're sitting in here in this hall, uh, if you're interested in the development of this, ele- of this element of the Eightfold Path, developing these jhana factors is skillful means. Okay, so far? I want to not belabor these points for people who aren't interested in them. On the other hand, I want to cover them enough because, boy, I was really served when I encountered this material. Like, whoa, why weren't you telling me this for 20 years? This is really useful. And it's laid out in the Buddha, you know, as an invitation. Yeah, why not try it? Plus, it feels good. It's a lot of fun. Okay, so doing okay? All right, the point certainly in the Buddhist framework, is that liberating insight is the ultimate aim. People can take these uh, states of being as ends in themselves. Okay, it's up to you. But they're in the Buddhist frame, they're not framed as ends in themselves. They're means to an end of purification and motivation and support for insight. Uh, radical liberating insight is, is highly valued in the Buddhist path. It uh, doesn't mean uh, book learning. It means nonverbal, mainly experiential, often intuitive, liberating insight into things. The ultimate transformation, the ultimate movement, to the extent that it exists between the natural frame of conditioned phenomena into cessation, nibbana, and the unconditioned, maybe that happens in part through grace. Don't know. But meanwhile... Even if, as the metaphor has it, you know, the apple ultimately falls by grace, the causes and conditions that made it ripe for grace uh, are grounded in the skillful means of everyday life. Okay? Then finishing here, oh, two quotes one from Shantideva, great Tibetan teacher, quite a radical character. Penetrative insight joined with calm abiding. That's technical language for deep concentration, calm abiding, tranquility, peace. Penetrative insight and calm abiding utterly eradicates afflicted states. I hope that's true. I'm counting on it myself. Last quote from the Buddha. Uh, he's, you know, he was a farmer. He was a wealthy farmer, essentially. And... Um, there are there are a lot of agricultural metaphors in the Pali Canon, the early teachings of the Buddha, and uh, so you think of the heartwood of a tree, that which is really valued. He says, "This spiritual life does not have gain, honor, or renown for its benefit. 
or the attainment of moral discipline for its benefit, or the attainment of concentration for its benefit, or knowledge and vision, which refers to almost mystical states of consciousness, for its benefit. But it is this unshakable liberation of mind that is the goal of this spiritual life, its heartwood and its end. So that's the frame here. Inside that frame, we're speaking of earlier stages of the path mainly, but it's a path that's aimed all the way. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that aspiration. Um, I'll never climb Mount Everest in this life. And yet I can appreciate that a lot of the things I've done in the wilderness are part of a process or path that could uh, lead to that or could have led to that if I'd made other choices along the way. Right? Uh, and meanwhile, experiencing the path each day is full of heart each step of the way, each breath of the way. Okay. So that's the frame here. Then I'm going to get into meditative practices. Any maybe quick question about this material? Is there anything like, yeah, please. The microphone runners. Be prepared, as my Boy Scout, Scoutmaster kept telling me, be prepared, Rick. I belonged to a really scruffy juvenile delinquent troop, which was a good for me as a very nerdy good boy. So anyway. Okay, yeah. Thank you, Rick. Um, the Shantideva quote about afflicted states. I'm a, I'm a psychotherapist and dealing with chronic mental illness and depression and addiction. Yeah. Is that a claim that he could make for those kinds of states? Yeah, it's really interesting. So, <clears throat> first, if someone's brain is impaired, maybe because the person's had traumatic or addictive experiences. Mind changes brain, just like brain changes mind. They co-arise. Well, it might be difficult for someone to have the capacity for the kind of penetrating insight or calm abiding on the one hand. On the other hand, there are many historic examples, including in Shanti Davis tradition and other traditions where people who are really miserable and nasty characters even when they started out if they gave their whole heart to the path could really develop along the way. Interestingly, and there's a famous set of stories about this the, in the Buddha's relationship with a serial killer of his time uh, Angulimala uh, where a person may still have to deal with the karmas in this life, the effects of previous actions, including prison terms, potentially, while, on the other hand, having their own consciousness be really purified and they've, they've moved to being a really different kind of person. So there might still be consequences that we person has to deal with, but the fact that those consequences perhaps are still even lawfully visited upon someone who's transformed doesn't mean the transformation's any less. That part. Um, there are also examples of people who um, have experienced momentary liberation from chronic pain or depression and then the causes and conditions of that in the body come back, unfortunately. And yet, knowing that something is possible can be really, really healing, I think. Uh, I also think about lesser versions of this. I mean, he's talking about the utter eradication in the moment um, and then more 
generally, you know, along the lines of in the beginning nothing came, in the middle nothing stayed, in the end nothing left, right? In that, at least that middle, if not the end. Along the way, I think that, you know, one thing I've really come to see again and again and again is never bet against the human heart. But it's about practice, though. It's kind of, it's two things. It's a fantastic sense of possibility and also a sense of responsibility. We have to practice. And the brain resists change, including undoing the negative stuff because we're designed to overlearn from the negative for raw survival reasons in the context of most of our ancestors having short lifespans. Uh, so the long-term costs of that design feature of the brain were not significant. These days they're significant for quality of life, for sure, and long-term health. So, um, you know, my, my point about that is that we have to make efforts to change. On the other hand, with sincerity, with practice, we can often make enormous effort, and things can really change. I've seen many, many people who would spend 10 minutes a day, they'd spend hours a day getting good at things that they didn't value much. They wouldn't spend 10 minutes a day becoming a better parent or mate or wiser with their own mind. And I think, hey, you know, as ye sow, so shall ye reap, for better or for worse. So both are true for me. This is a really sweet metaphor, apparently, in Tibet. Like I said, they have great metaphors. Here's a metaphor from Alcoholics Anonymous, just to spread the wealth. The mind is the dangerous neighborhood. Never go in alone. <laughs> right? Including, it's important to have the internalization of our allies who are with us, our friends. I talk about the Caring Committee, which for me is both the fairy godmother, the plump one from Sleeping Beauty, and Gandalf, and I don't know why, Mike Singletary, 49ers coach, Linebacker eyes. I don't know. They're in my caring committee. <laughs> it's good. Anyway, okay. Also, metaphor from Tibet. I'll finish on this one. Um, to imagine the surface of your mind, apparently, you know, in this really cold environment, a lot of snow, uh, they would, for example, make a wood stove under a metal plate. So the metal plate, they would cook on the metal plate sitting on top of a wood fire. And they said the surface of consciousness can be like the surface of that metal plate. So as the snowflakes of thoughts and feelings, including afflictive states, land, they can be self-liberated in the moment of appearing in awareness. That's kind of cool to play around with. So even without uh, the complete, you know, unshakable, irrevocable, permanent liberation of mind, meanwhile, thank goodness, Meanwhile, we can cultivate a state of consciousness if only in certain moments where whoosh, things arise, pain arises, hurt arises, uh, or, you know, rancor may arise in the mind. And through seeing its nature in the moment as transient, ephemeral, ownerless, dependently arising, it can be liberated, landing on the surface of that hot stove like a snowflake. That's cool, isn't it? Here's another quote. I'll finish on this one. Francis Bacon, early philosopher of science, he, he wrote this thing. It's kind of amazing. Think of this as like a hardcore scientist in the early Renaissance. Um, he said, we have only this moment sparkling in our hand like a diamond and melting like a snowflake. 
All right. I want to give you a roadmap from the Buddha, and then we're going to practice, okay? So, roadmap. There's this really great practice. I think of Coach Buddha, played by Robert De Niro, or technical center, I don't know, telling us what to do. He, he laid out this path. That I just want to say it here. So he says, practice in this way. He laid out a number of paths, but this is a really kind of essential feature. Steady the mind internally. So practice, meditation, concentration. Steady the mind internally. Quiet it. Bring it to singleness. That's that jhana factor. Singleness of mind, mind as a whole. And then on that basis, concentrate it moving into the jhanas, liberating insight. Those first three steps, steady the mind, quiet it, bring it to singleness, that's very available in everyday meditation practice. That's accessible to us. And for many people, there are probably the great the majority of people in the world, when they do something contemplative every day, it's theistic. It's a form of prayer. So maybe that's the object of meditation. The sense of the divine, or a prayer, a statement, a proverb. Maybe that's the practice for that particular person. Upon which a person's mind can steady, and then quiet, and then come to singleness. Alright? So I want to use that as a roadmap now, kind of for the remainder of the day. But I'm going to include the sukha. The factor of happiness, contentment, and tranquility. And we're going to kind of play around with this. Okay? And then we definitely will take a break, and I'll end by five for sure. All right. Okay, so far? So. So I'm going to propose that we do kind of a sequence of meditation here. All right, we're going to move from steadiness into quiet, and then we'll take a break. Think of this as a bit of a workout. You might get a little tired, but that's okay. That's a sign that you're working it. All right. You know. I don't mean this literally, but there's a saying in rock climbing, if you're not bleeding, you haven't had fun. So <laughs> that's very loosely related to this practice. Hopefully it involves no bleeding. It's okay though in this setting to bring a little effort to it. If you, get, if you want to stand up to kind of wake up or you want to move around, feel really free. If you want to do this on your own outside, it's okay. You know, so we're going to start with steadiness. So in a moment, I'll, just, I'll start right now. Pick an object of attention. It's okay to switch objects of attention, but don't jump around too much. And it's also helpful to pick an object of attention that is stimulating enough to keep you engaged. For some people who are temperamentally quite calm, something relatively unstimulating like the feeling of breathing is enough. Other people, maybe they're just naturally more spirited or have been trained by life to be more spirited, more jumpy, even ADHD, ADD, you know, range of the temperamental spectrum. Maybe you need to think about something that makes you just happy. You're just going to focus on the happy feeling of this really neat camp out you did with friends or something. That's your object of attention. Or maybe what it feels like just to be with your dog. Your dog greets you. How that feels. Oh, it's great. That's your object of attention. Whatever. Find an object of attention. And then devote yourself to it. Renouncing all other lovers. Renouncing all else. 
give over to this object of attention. So I'll say less and less as we continue here. Picking your object of attention. And then we'll do this for about 10 minutes or so. Being given over to it. Increasingly absorbed in it. As you do this, you might notice the beginning of distractions arising and gently disengage from them or it might feel more like you're kind of just batting them away. Not angrily, just kind of nudging them away. Staying with your object of attention. You are becoming absorbed in this object of attention. It can help to encourage well-being around the object so that um, you feel safe enough and content enough and warm-hearted enough to stay absorbed in the object of attention so that it fills your awareness increasingly.
you're allowing other things to move through awareness, you're simply not following them or resisting them. In effect, you are renouncing them. To allow yourself to be increasingly absorbed in the object of attention. If you like, you can explore relaxing, deliberate, top-down control just enough so that you can still stay absorbed increasingly naturally in whatever you're focusing on. As you relax the reins, um, your mind might jump around a little more and You might need to tighten the reins a little bit. But see what it's like to explore the possibilities of loosening top-down control of attention and find more of a bottom-up giving yourself over to your object of attention.
And then if you like, as part of just this workout, as it were, this training, you might like to explore opening your eyes if they're closed and seeing if you can remain in touch with the breath or other object of attention, even while there's a lot of visual stimulation. without disturbing people near you, if you want, you can also explore making small movements, perhaps with your hands or your feet or your head, while maintaining focus on your breath or other object. If you want, you can also explore what it's like to stay in touch with your breath or other object while bringing various aspects of well-being into it. Integrating, perhaps, feelings of peacefulness or kindness or contentment with the breath maybe a sense of easing, reassurance, or delight. Amidst the feeling of breathing, 
And then last in this practice, let the sense of steadiness sink into you. Let it anchor itself in your body, knowing what this is like. Present, steady, disengaged from what distracts or disturbs. You might shift your posture if that's real for you and do something that feels perhaps dignified, sense of gravity. Strength. As you register this sense of steadiness, stability of presence. Recognizing what could be rewarding about this steadiness, how it might feel good. So let's steadily take a break. You might want to protect your own state of being. Feel free to go outside. Please come back in 20 minutes at 15 to 4. The after, after that, we're going to explore happiness, contentment, and tranquility. So you really want to come back. And um, so I'll see you at a quarter to 4. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.